Namo tatsa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa namo tatsa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa namo tatsa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Aparuta de Sangamatasatawara ye sodavanta bamunchandu satang. So the reflection, contemplation, these kind of words, the listening, uh, reflecting upon, noticing, paying attention, intuition. Let's reiterate these. You think, like in uh, contemplation, oftentimes is connected. People consider it like thinking about something. Like in Christian practices, a contemplation of the suffering of Jesus Christ and uh, things like this are how they use contemplation. But when I use the word, it's more like. Uh, Contemplating the, the, what something is like, like an existing uh, condition. For example, if, if anger, if you feel angry or you feel resentful, to contemplate that feeling means to not not to 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 figure out why or where it comes from, but it's the way it is. Let it be and, and just notice what does it feel like as experience in the present. And then the three characteristics of anicca, dukkha, nata are the kind of guides, guiding suggestions, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not self. But you're not to just go around thinking, oh, anger is just impermanent, uh, unsatisfactory, not self, <laughs> as a, just a, as a thought or to project those those ideas onto experience, but there's suggestions to the mind uh, to look at look at impermanence, contemplate impermanence, anicca. And so then you, you know, I remember just noticing uh, this uh, the passage of time, how day the sun rises and sets, or just using the the uh, subject of impermanence or Nietzsche as a as a subject to contemplate for the day or for several days. This visual changing or changing, uh, just noticing like sound itself uh, when an airplane flies over or uh, somebody says something. How sound or uh, is is very definitely impermanent fleeting, ephemeral, taste, touch, uh, is that permanent, John? No. <laughs> so contemplating and reflecting upon
virtues that are like as the other night talking about contentment and gratitudes and and these aren't like saying that you should feel these emotions i'm not when when i when we contemplate contentment and gratitude it's not a kind of imperative of saying you should be content and grateful uh, but it's it's encouraging uh, a way of living in which these kind of feelings come to you. you. You kind of cultivate them. Like in monastic life, as I was saying, you, you, you deliberately cultivate contentment. It's not that you, it, it comes that naturally because a lot of the time you're very discontent with everything. But through contemplating that discontent and the suffering that comes from always, uh, you know, complaining or wanting something to be better and what you have isn't good enough or whatever, you know, then you see the suffering of those negative mental states. And you develop, uh, and by contemplating the the goodness of people's actions, like being alms mendicants, just contemplating the fact that that our lives depend on the kindness of others. That's one of the monastic contemplations. Our lives depend on the kindness of others. And that's what, as alms mendicants, so then we, that, that begins to, somehow that's, that's a beautiful thing to, to remember every day in your life, and for, for a monk or a nun. Then the goodness of you know the, the, all the good actions done by human beings today in the world contemplate things like this. Tiny little things, maybe like uh, just little helping somebody cross the street, or uh, you know um, doing something kind or good for or somebody else, unselfish action, good action, whether it's on, on a great scale or a small scale. But all together, think of all the good actions that conscious beings have performed today is, is another contemplation, which helps you to uh, think in a more positive way about the goodness of humanity. I remember a year ago I was in uh, Darjeeling in, at this tea garden. I was having a retreat in this tea garden. And, uh, and this lovely guest house that they just built. And I was the first guest in it. And uh, they had a television in the in the kind of uh, lounge of this guest house. I was the only guest in the house, so I had it all to myself. And the uh, and the manager of the tea garden had, had turned the television, switched it on to so that the only thing you could really get on this television was the BBC uh, international news. So. Um, 
This was at the time that Pol Pot died in Cambodia. So I, I, the day they cremated Pol Pot's corpse, I saw it on the television. And, and I'd been to Cambodia the, in 1997 uh, and uh, for a month and uh, had, you know, was an invited guest of the Sangha Raja of Cambodia. So, and, and so I was a kind, of, a kind of given the VIP treatment and taken to Anger Wat and then to uh, other kind of resort town on the coast and and gave some retreats in Phnom Penh and um, met all kinds of people and there's a lot of, you know, the country is a um, having a rather tragic history uh, going to these places with these museums where they have all the skulls of the killing fields and the, this uh, school where they tortured people and had all their photographs on the walls and the, the most kind of ominous and depressing images into the mind of brutality and, and kind of delighting in in torturing people prolonging their death so that they they so that they have a long drawn out horrible agonizing death it wasn't like just shooting somebody in the head the Khmer Rouge loved to, to really make people suffer and, uh, and, and make it last as long as possible. So this is, uh, you know, these images are in my mind of the, the horror of this, uh, of the killing fields in Cambodia. And of course, Pol Pot is the symbol for all of that. The, the kind of demon that, that everybody regards as the, the one of the great monsters of the of this uh, century. There's Hitler, Stalin, and Pol Pot. <laughs> so this is, um, and at this time I was doing this practice of uh, I rejoice in the in the inconceivably vast oceans of good actions performed by conscious beings since beginningless time. So this was, on this retreat, this is what I, I was contemplating. I rejoice in the uh, inconceivably vast oceans of good actions performed by conscious beings since beginningless time. So, the, so then I could see that, that, that on the television, Pol Pot's corpse was—it was burned like a, like rubbish on a fire. Here he was, uh, an old man, that everybody hated. The uh, Khmer Rouge had turned against him. Uh, he had a wife and daughter, but they weren't at the funeral. Uh, there was uh, just a, a couple of armed guards, and it was. Uh, photographed, you know, uh, that he died near the Thai border, not in Thailand, but in the Cambodian side, but near the Thai border, a rather remote place. And uh, they just built a fire um, with some rubber tires, threw his body on top, threw the old mattress that he died on, 
and a bamboo chair that he sat on, this pile of rubbish burned. <laughs> and that was uh, the, you know, the, and one, one couldn't help but kind of uh, in the feeling of rejoicing at the dismal end of a terrible monster rather than rejoice in the inconceivably vast notions of good actions performed by conscious beings since beginningless time. So just noticing this, this tendency to uh, to feel he deserved it, you know, revenge. Uh, he even that was too good for him, or you know, he should have been made to die in a horrible way uh, to, to get even with him. The kind of revengeful, vindictive tendencies of the human mind. I wasn't I wasn't having these. I didn't feel like that, but I could understand those kind of emotions. And so I thought probably everybody at this time is think, is kind of thinking good riddance to that old monster. And uh, you know thinking you know nobody thinking of Pol Pot in any positive way, but only in what a terrible monster he he was. So then I deliberately tried to think, well, surely, you know, Pol Pot had moments of kindness in his life. He had a dog. He was kind to his wife, his daughter. He had, uh, he'd been a temple boy in the Buddhist temple when he was in. And so things like this, I began to try to rejoice in the good actions of Pol Pot just as an exercise for contemplation, like to contemplate that. Because the perception of Pol Pot is, is like it's a monster. And so, um, and yet nobody is totally evil, you know, there's no one. It's, it's good actions performed by Hitler by Stalin, you know, just because they're, they're, uh, you know, they do terrible things doesn't mean they're they're totally evil. They never do anything good. So, contemplating this, rejoicing in the good actions, and they they inconceivably this is from Mahayana texts, and they they're very much into these kind of hyperbolic expressions. Uh, inconceivably vast oceans of good actions performed by conscious beings since beginningless time. And I thought at this time, maybe I'm the only person on this planet that is rejoicing in the good actions of Pol Pot. <laughs> and I know some people would really be angry with me for even crediting him with possibly at one moment in his life he had one act of kindness, like petting the dog or, or buying his wife a new dress or something. It's possible. <laughs> so, I mean, these little things, even though they might be, seem trivial, yet in, in it's an exercise in, in, uh, in consciously kind of informing yourself of of, of rejoicing in the goodness of, of humanity and in the good actions. 
This I found a, an exercise to counterbalance my tendency to to give so much importance to the bad actions of humanity, myself included. I've noticed in my my own life, I'm very, I I'm very good at at making a big deal about the mistakes and and uh, foolish things I've done or faults and weaknesses that I have. I can make a real, really get off on that. But the goodness of my life, I tend to almost dismiss. And the, the, you know, so what? But, you know, I'm... And then it goes into the uh, list of uh, failures or weaknesses, faults. Why? Why do I do that? I don't know why, but I, but that, but that, what happens? Giving so much importance to what's wrong. I noticed this in the in the sangha here in England. Uh, there's so much, there's so much interest in what's wrong with the sangha. That that sometimes the goodness of the sangha is almost dismissed as not being realistic or in denial. The, the attitude that there's something wrong, or there's some great lack, or that you know there's a real problem that we have to find out what the solution is, and these kind of these kind of uh, thoughts are quite common among monastics. So. But it, it, this isn't a denial of that there isn't anything, that, that everything's just pu- uh, perfect and there's nothing wrong with us. But, but it does tend to, to create an atmosphere of anxiety or always this feeling, underlying feeling that there's something wrong. And we've got to, you really got to have more meetings and really try to have more discussions on this and try to find out what it is. And and we've done that and, and everything and it seems to make it worse. <laughs> so maybe, maybe the the problem is in the in in dwelling on or just assuming that there is something wrong, and and, and giving that our so much importance and so much attention. So in this, uh, I rejoice in the inconceivably vast oceans of good actions performed by conscious beings since the beginning of this time. I rejoice in the inconceivably vast oceans of good actions performed by the Sangha here in England since it began. (laughs) Isn't that better? So this is a, a contemplation of of, uh, uh, of you know which is based on on not on on any kind of uh, idealistic thinking or or fantasy, but in our hearts we know, isn't it, our the, the goodness that, that we want to be good. And most humans I know, even if they're they aren't very good. They really want to be. So I mean, it's uh, you know sometimes it they just don't 
you know, they, they are caught in, in resentments and, and attitudes and habits that, that drive them to do harmful or corrupt things. But, but uh, the aspiration is, is common. I've, I don't think I've ever met any human being who's, who I can say is just totally evil and has never had one, you know, hasn't had the aspiration for good action of some sort or for goodness. So remembering this and, and to, to uh, bring this back into your own mind, you know, how that, that to, it isn't inflating, it isn't to inflate the ego, but it's to be honest about the way things are. In our in our uh, one practice that we have in the monastery is to share the blessings of our life, because the attitude in, in Buddhism is not to just do these things for just selfish ends. So even our meditation, even when we're sitting here, I'm going to get enlightened. Actually, the you know maybe think I'm just. You know, I don't, I don't know what you're doing, but I'm going to do it. <laughs> I think that sounds very selfish. But also, then we share the blessings of our practice with, uh, with, with others. And, we, and this is a, a beautiful kind of chant that we do uh, at, at the end of the day to, to offer or to share the blessings of our life, the goodness of our life, uh, and practice with uh, all sentient beings. And in Buddhist uh, terms, all sentient beings, including the, the, the demons and the angels, the monsters with, uh, and, the, and the saints and the uh, forces seen, forces unseen, born, not yet born, and so forth. So it, it's so all-inclusive, it, it leaves you, you, you know, you, you couldn't possibly leave any, anyone out of this blessing. It's, it's, uh, there's no, there's no, no being possibly, I mean, seen, unseen, born, not yet born, the Lord of Death. We share our blessings of our life with the Lord of Death. Whoever think of doing that? <laughs> and, uh, and with our mothers and fathers and teachers and, and so forth. Uh, so that it, in this way, this, uh, this, uh, it helps us to, to recognize that, that our lives, we're, we are in modern terms called interdependent. You know, we're we're not just isolated entities uh, operating, uh, in, in, you know, in our own way that doesn't that has no effect on anyone else. I used to think that, I, you know, when I was more before I started meditating, I was quiet. I was brought up to be a kind of this kind of individual. The idea was to be a free individual, and to be independent free and individual. 
These were the ideals. So, so these were, this, this gave me the impression, you know, my life is my business, not yours. And, and what I do with my life is my business, none of your business. And if I want to ruin my life, well, that's my business. Don't you worry about it. <laughs> Taking responsibility. And, uh, and you just mind your business, take care of your life. <laughs> so, and that seemed, you know, fair enough. Fair enough. Keep your nose out of my business. <laughs> And so then noticing the, that the effect of this, uh, this attitude was, as I, as I reached 30, I began to suffer a lot from a sense of, of uh, kind of chronic loneliness. And uh, it wasn't that I didn't have any friends or anything, but even with friends, I'd even been married, but I was still lonely. And this loneliness wasn't due to, to uh, not having any, any friends or not relating, you know, in a, or not having good friendships, but it was an attitude that had, was beginning to, I was beginning to reap the result of this, what I consider this, this individual, independent, free spirit that said, my life is my business and none of, not your business. Mind your own business. And, I, and then through meditation, I began to see how, how you know, emotionally, I'd, I'd kind of cut myself off from, from the rest of the world with my ideals of independence and individualism. And so that, that uh, with, with those as my, those are my kind of guidelines for, for uh, living, you know, the result was, it, it, in one way it was rather fun when you're young because you, you kind of enjoy the freedom of, of all that and asserting yourself and, and uh, kind of not, uh, not being concerned about what others think and 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 not in thinking it doesn't matter what I do because you know it's it's not going to hurt anyone else if it hurts me well then I'll, I'll accept that. But now I wouldn't think like that because I see we affect each other whether we intend to or not we still do. That this is a a very sensitive realm that we're in. This is the sense realm. This planet. It's all about sense, sense experience, isn't it? About seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, about feeling. It's all about how things affect us, just a tone of voice or, or words uh, or things, you know, we feel it. Like I was talking to somebody today who's telling me about talking to somebody who's angry with him on the telephone. And just the anger that comes across on a telephone, he went through, through every cell of his body. And somebody didn't really care about it anyway, it didn't matter if he was, but this, the, the power of an angry voice. 
that's sensitivity, isn't it? You think, well, you could rationalize and say, well, it's his business, it is suffering, you know, and, and dismiss and not feel it. But actually, it has, it ha- you have felt it, but you don't, you, we have ways of, of not noticing, of not, because being sensitive is rather frightening, isn't it? To be sensitive like this means, you know, it's very, it's, uh, we're subject to, you know, so much, uh, Things happening that that we we develop we we have to develop kind of protection around us. Now I notice in in another thing attitude for my generation for men was uh, men aren't sensitive. Women are sensitive. Men aren't. We don't feel things. We're tough. Men don't cry like women do. And this kind of tough image. So, you know, you, you get these, these, these kind of messages when you're a child, you know, don't you, you know, men don't cry. It's weak, a sign of weakness, or feeling is a sign of weakness. So you, you develop, in a, I remember in the military, we developed a kind of a false, this macho kind of suit of armor where you know, I don't, you know, nothing bothers me. You know, I'm not afraid of anything. And you're, sh- you're sh- you know, you're shaking and quivering inside with terror. And you say, I'm not afraid of anything. And and this is the 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 charade or the mask that you put on in 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 the in public. So it's a way of of protecting yourself, a suit of armor maybe, or a or a costume of some sort. Um, but then in, in meditation, what happens is that you are completely opening the doors to be fully sensitive. And how to interpret sensitivity? This is where the Buddha was, was, was pointing to that seeing sensitivity in terms of Dhamma rather than in terms of self. Now, being sensitive as a personality, as a person, is if I am this body, really, this is me, and, and my emotions, and my feelings, and my thoughts, and my memories, and, and my eyes, and ears, and nose, and tongue, and so forth, all this is mine, and then I become quite frightened by the, the sensitive state. It just seems, you know, overwhelming when you contemplate life. It just seems like it's just to think that this interdependence and every this sensitivity is so all-pervasive. All you want to do is, is just kind of find a place to kind of protect yourself, a fortress to live in, a little cave, you know, uh, uh, a do not disturb sign on the front of your cave. (laughs) And uh, strangers stay away. And and they're just, you know, trying to, to limit the amount of sensory impingement and 
and, and alien influences. Because also we can start thinking, you know, paranoia is a kind of, there's all kinds of alien influences out there, you know, and, and, uh, and, and so we can speculate about all possibilities of, of uh, things, spirits, ghosts, um, creatures from other planets and so forth out there. Uh, that are that can ha- harm me in some way. So we can also create a whole kind of, uh, you know, a, a whole army of of danger in our minds about the, what's out there in the universe, in the dark. And so we we we, we become paranoid and frightened and and. Uh, and uh, our lives are, you know, interpreted on the self level, then there is a lot to, to worry about. Because the body can be easily damaged. That, uh, our feelings can be easily hurt. Somebody insults us or makes fun of us or humiliates us. I mean, these are common human experiences we all dread and, and, and don't want in life. So then, how to interpret sensitivity through wisdom? And this is this was is the Buddha's uh, message: is interpreting this sensitive state in terms of Dhamma, the way it is. Sensitivity is like this. So we contemplating vedana, pleasure and pain, and neutral. Contem- we're, we're we're reflecting on what pleasure is, and pain is, and neutral feeling. What what happiness and suffering are, what equanimity is, what, what uh, silence is, what uh, noise, what aggravation is, pain and, and so forth. We're, we're opening to these, by, not by just trying to protect ourselves from feeling them, but by actually turning to them to understand sensitivity into where we no longer create suffering around this sensitive state. So we are liberated through being totally open and totally sensitive because we find that that's where we don't create suffering. When we're, in other words, the enlightened mind. We're not creating suffering out of ignorance, out of fear and out of desire. So it is in, in this, this practice that we've been doing is in this sense of, of embracing, of opening, of welcoming, but in terms of Dhamma rather than in terms of me and mine and self. See, this is the anatta and Dhamma rather than, than the atta or self-view. Now culturally we're we're conditioned to interpret experience through the self-view, the personality view, the personal experience, my life, my feelings, my body. And now we're contemplating it in terms of Dhamma, which is there is this, there is this feeling, there is pleasure, there is pain, there is suffering, there is happiness, there is peace, there is 
war and so forth, but these are to be understood through, through, uh, through embracing rather than uh, resisted uh, through fear and ignorance. And so the, the human, our human karma is such that, that we are in a place where we can actually do this, the human mind being a reflective mind, the Buddha mind. We're we in in terms of of the way it is. Each one of us is is like a, this. We're we're on this point where there is the conditioned and the unconditioned. In the T. S. Eliot poem, the intersection between the timeless with time. To apprehend the point of intersection of the timeless with time is the occupation of the saint. So they apprehend the point of intersection, to know that point of intersection of the timeless with time. And this is, this is the here and now for each one of us. And don't believe me, contemplate this. Because we, we can actually see that the time and the timeless where we are in this moment. Because we're, we're a conscious entity in the universe, there is a kind of independent conscious entity. I mean, we're not, we're not merged in, in, in the unconditioned in terms of, uh, of having a physical conscious body. So this particular thing of being a, a, a conscious entity in the universe, not in a personal way, like I am a conscious entity in the universe, but this is the way it is, isn't it? This is, like I was saying, you're in, in my mind, and you contemplate it. And we can, we can just give all our attention to the, <clears throat> to the time-bound things, the conditioned realm, you know. And, and, and this is what materialism does, it's always you know, sorting out, rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. It's always trying to create perfect societies out of ideas, you know, perfect socialist systems, communist systems, democratic societies, common markets, economic markets, and, and, uh, and you know, we can conceive, we can create with our mind, uh, you know, ideal societies. And it was based on the highest principles and the highest morality and the very best of the best. But in terms of experience, life is, is never like that. It's like this, changing. The time-bound conditions are always, you know, you can't, you know, you can get them at, say, a new something, but it, what does it do? It just gets old. You know, contemplating this temple. We built it now, and then on July the 4th, well, it'll be, it reaches peak. It's finished. It's at its peak. New temple, completed. Grand finale. What's it going to do for that? It's just going to get old. Isn't that this guy? <laughs> After the 4th of July. <laughs> <laughs> or 
chitters towels. I remember when we when we acquired chitters. You know, it was it has on the front of the entrance 1862, a year that it was probably built. 1862 for an American, that's quite old. For an English person, that's not very old, but for an American, that's really old. So, so uh, you know, going 1862, that's when Civil War was happening in the United States. You know, and Abraham Lincoln was president, and and this house was built, and somebody, you know, obviously, well-off person built a rather nice house. You know, it is good material, stone, and. It was very well made, you know, when you, when we, 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 because it was derelict by the time we got it, but we had to uh, kind of demolish parts of it and rebuild it. So we can see that originally it was built with, you know, from some quite well-off person. It was a kind of a showpiece uh, and uh, a beautifully constructed and designed house made out of the best materials. And stone, too. You know, stone has a sense of lasting a long time. And I'm from uh, the Northwest in Seattle, where they're all wooden houses. You know, so seldom see stone houses, or even brick houses in in Seattle. But in, and so you'd always think of stone houses, or even, I remember when I came to England, uh, just admiring all the bricks, <laughs> infinite variety of bricks that you have here, and everything's brick. And when Ajahn Chah, when we took him up to Edinburgh one time, he, he looks at Edinburgh and he says, it's a stone city. <laughs> everything's made out of stone. And so <laughs> And stone and brick has seemed little more permanent than wood. And, and yet this stone house, over, over after 100, 120 years, was, uh, was about ready to collapse. And uh, dry rot and it hadn't been taken care of. Uh, the previous owners were, were nice people, but uh, totally incapable of doing anything to repair the place. And uh, it was quite amusing. It's like, you know, like going into, to, it's like Miss Havisham in Great Expectations. You know, <laughs> going into that house, it was, <laughs> everything was uh, decaying. And yet, uh, you, you realize that in one way it was built to last, and yet even a stone house, you know, it kind of it gets old. I mean, you build it up, you decorate it, it all looking very wonderful. You invite all your friends, housewarming, and everybody says, "Oh, isn't it beautiful?" And then what does it do? It starts aging, and you have to to keep it going. You have to keep repairing it and fix it, repairing the leaks in the roof and repainting the walls, uh, no matter how hard you try, it's still, its natural state is to, is to degenerate. So this, this is just the, the way it is, this, this, uh, this longing to create uh, uh, and a kind of permanent 
conditions and ideal conditions of the human uh, human being. And you can see so much of the energy of the past of this century really has been, you know, full of these kind of ideas of socialism and unionism and and uh, communism. And now now democracy is the big thing. Uh, you know, working towards trying to create the fair systems and which is fine you know nothing against this but all our attention is toward the condition you know emphasizing how important it is to to make everything fair and just and right on the condition level say this is one one way of looking at life only facing the conditions the time bound and so then what happens is you know your your emphasis is, is that's all you see and you 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 don't know the way things are, so you're in many ways you you're disappointed with life because no matter how hard you try and give your life to these good causes, in the end it doesn't seem to matter that much. In the end of the day, remains the day. And then people say, "I've wasted my life after doing a lot of good things." Or knowing that we're the point of intersection, after the point of intersection of the timeless with time, was the timeless then, the unconditioned. So now, in thing we're reflecting on from the condition, from from observing suffering, the nature of suffering, the first noble truth, the second noble truth, the causes of suffering. We 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 realize the cessation of suffering and then the cessation of suffering is the realization of the unconditioned reality that we can turn to and and begin to to notice and to awaken to the deathless reality which is deathless unlimited timeless immeasurable uh, desireless, un- now in terms of, of our ability as this point of intersection then, is that the Buddha said not not to reject the conditioned realm and say, I'm nothing more to do with the conditioned realm. I'm only paying attention to the unconditioned. <laughs> you can't do that because we need to, because we have the, the conditions are so strong still, the body and the, and the karma we have. So how to relate the condition with the unconditioned? You know, how to, and this is the gift that we have as this point of intersection. This position of mindfulness, the way it is. So that we, we're reflecting on the way it is by paying attention to it. It's like this. Conditions are, we end up seeing the condition realm is anicca dukkanata. The unconditioned And then the mind stops. 
you know, it's not anicca, it's not dukkha, it's not anatta. <laughs> well, it is anatta, that is, it is anatta. No self. Empty, but it's pure and it's intelligent. It's not, it's not uh, annihilation. It's not dead in the sense of, 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 of blank void of nothingness. But it's it's the background, the 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 that which contains where the conditions arise and cease. And in the particular perspective we have as human individual entities, that we can we can realize this for ourselves, know this. This is something you can prove, you can know directly through intuitive awareness. So in uh, Buddhist terms like grasping and non-grasping, we, we work on just that level, grasping conditions and letting them go. To realize non-grasping, realize anatta, non-self. No desire and desirelessness. And this we, you know, so we, we learn from, we we learn about desirelessness through desire and and anatta through atta, through self. We learn, we realize non-self. Through grasping, then we realize the peace of non-grasping. So, so it is a, this reflective, contemplative uh, way of, uh, this intuitive way of, of examining uh, experience this sensitive experience that we're in is uh, through this this what they call realization when everything ceases in terms of right now when there's no grasping no desire no self what's left like this the breath the body's like this, the sound of silence. And you kind of, you learn to, to just relax with that because you're not grasping it. You're not identifying with it. But you're accepting it. It's like this. And, and so you're, you're in the present, but you're no longer, uh, you, you know, trying to get something or get rid of something but learning to relax and to trust in pure attention and pure awareness. Then your relationship to the conditioned realm is one of metta, karuna, mudita, upeka, the four brahma-viharas. The response to the suffering of others is karuna. But that's from the purity of the mind. It's not me feeling sorry for people who are suffering. It's not personal. It's a natural response out of wisdom and purity. Compassion then is, is a natural response from the purity of the, of the mind. Not a personal uh, emotion anymore. Because you you understand suffering and you 
your compassion is empathetic it's not it's not patronizing and then mudita the the joy the rejoicing in the goodness in the inconceivably vast oceans of good actions performed by conscious beings since beginning of time mudita that comes from the purity of the mind it's not 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 a personal emotion anymore so you find in the emptiness of the mind the more you begin to experience that then there's a lot of joy in life like i experience a lot quite a lot of joy in my life that i that i never did you say before and this joy is is not kind of uh, some creative state that I make up, but it's it's when there is this 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 awareness and trust, and then the, the sometimes just the beauty of of life is is it just feels brings such joy as experience. And then upeka uh, equanimity. One finds a, a sense of balance and serenity that's quite natural to to this point of intersection between the timeless with time. <laughs> so uh, this offering this as a reflection and uh, and then to encourage this practice of trusting yourself, your intuitive uh, awareness or realization of this truth, of truth. You know, so it's not just just uh, sentiment or ideal, it's not an idealism I'm pointing to, but to a realization, to reality, the way it is. And this reality has to be experience individually by the wise budgetung waited up all we knew him no I can't do it for you you have to do it <laughs> you have to realize it. so for this is a reflection mm-hmm.